evening. Let's turn to Isaiah 42. Quick reminder, gentlemen and ladies, if you're seniors, in uh, January 21st is our breakfast. We're going to have breakfast here, 9 o'clock for both uh, men and women seniors. So we're not doing a men's only thing. So 21st, kicking off 2020 with a good vision, right? 2020 vision. Uh, so it's men and women, all of you are invited. I'll remind you again as we get closer. But I said that so I wouldn't forget. So Isaiah 42. We haven't been in class for a few weeks, so we're going to pray and just kind of update ourselves where we're going with Isaiah and, and what's, what's the uh, near future holds. And I'll say it again, just because I heard that. Shut the phones off. You know, the weirdest thing is coaching baseball this time of the year, kids have cell phones at practice. Like, what? So I'm not used to that. That noise goes off and I'm going, throw it over the fence. Father, we thank you for this evening and spending time together in your word. Uh, Father, the the building is keeping us warm. The blessings we have with each other, uh, spending time together in the word and, and, and Father, sharing different issues we have and uh, the two main priority ones that we have is Rick's and his health and, and Billy dealing with it. And also, um, dear Lawrence, be with him as he's uh, dealing with some health issues. And fathers, we spend time tonight in the Word. We wanted to just not be uh, knowledge-seeking, but to understand your plan, to understand how you operate, and that you are a sovereign, a caring, loving God. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one of the things we're kind of going to see as we go through the rest of Isaiah, and prayerfully, um, 24 weeks in Isaiah, and we'll be done, hopefully. Uh, my goal, give or take, um, <coughs> and the flu don't get us again. Um, what I'd like to see, though, is plugging in some of these ideas that have to do with prophecy and understanding uh, Israel's role, because I think we're going to see a lot more uh, daily news on uh, the things that will line up for prophetic events. I'm not saying we're in prophecy, we're not in a prophetic age, but there are things that are lining up for the what we would call the, the last age of prophecy. And you can see these things as, as we... Uh, see those nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom, uh, those kind of issues, and how Israel interacts with all of that. And right now, since we're a, uh, a pretty good friend of Israel's, we're, we're on the wrong side of the fence. So that's good. Let's see how long that lasts, because biblically it says all nations rise against Israel. So I don't know what's going to happen to this nation. I pray it's not in my lifetime, because I don't know any island that I would like to live on so uh, this is going to be a rough place to go once the, the, we start rejecting Israel. And there's a large uh, population in this nation that has rejected Israel and doesn't want to do a whole lot for Israel anymore and become very pro-not-Israel, you know, like pro-Palestinian, whatever it might be. So, uh, so when we go through these prophecies, I want you to see how these plug in today to Israel and what we'll see in the coming days, because... I will say this, I've been uh, going to church since I've been 11. Uh, I'm not going to mark my age, but it's a long time. And in my school, they were very, I went to high school, there was a Christian school, and the church was part of the school, so you know the scenario. Uh, but my school was very much into prophecy and, and understanding prophecy and prophetic events. And we'd always get somebody come in like once 
a semester or something that gave some prophetic update in, in chapel kind of thing. And you, you sit there in chapel going, yeah, not in my lifetime, you know. And they would say things like you'd just go to the grocery store and scan your groceries and it would read it in a barcode and you go, right, that'll never happen. You know, I, I remember the guy saying it and saying how these things will, and there'll be a the little code box, and I don't know how he said it, that would read everything and give you all your information on this little code thing, and now we got QR code, and you go, what? You know, so we're, we've kind of been anesthetized to the rapid changes we've had that progresses into this prophetic time that will come, that known as the tribulation is the next on the prophetic calendar. However, thank God, uh, there is a way to avoid the tribulation as one becomes believer in Christ today, because we have two exit plans, death or the rapture, and we're done. We're not going through the tribulation. But we can see things lining up for that. So we're going to go to Isaiah 42, verse 8. We began a couple of weeks ago in 42, 1 through 7, talking about what the servant would be like. <clears throat> and again, i got to remind you as we go through here, there's a duality of servant. The ultimate servant is the Lord Jesus. He's the ultimate servant. And throughout the passages from 42 to 53 of Isaiah, there's going to be a duality of ideas about the servant, who it is. Is it Israel, or is it the Messiah, or is it Israel pictured in the Messiah, or the Messiah pictured in Israel? So there's a lot of things going on when you look at that. And the best way to do it is, I'm going to tell you the secret to all Bible study. Context, context, context. It'll, it could change on a dime. So right here, where we're at, um, we're in verse 8, and we're not going to go back and review a whole lot, because I really want us to be challenged tonight by understanding the sovereignty of God within this prophetic time that's coming. So I'm going to read verses 8, and uh, let's just go to 8 through 13. kind of sets the stage where we're going. Uh, And it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring up, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and, and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, their settlements, where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now, here, here's the interesting thing as we go through this. Um, every once in a while, and I think it's good for us to know this, Israel's got to get a jolt of good old theology. And I think this is probably the most important thing I can ever tell any of you. Um, how's your theology? You know, we're in 2020. Uh, many people have made resolutions, and I think it's the 8th today, right? Today's the 8th? And many of those resolutions are done away with already. You know, they've already had their chocolate, their cake, they blew their diet, they haven't run, they didn't do their sit-ups, whatever it might be, they're done. Um, But here's a good thing for us to resolve constantly, not just the new year, is how's your theology? So if I was to ask you, what does the sovereignty of God mean? Can you put it in like a sentence? And I think Isaiah did it really well for us. Because the very first verse here in verse 8 
kind of puts it in a nutshell for us, understanding God's sovereignty. Uh, and God's sovereignty never goes unchallenged. Either nations, leaders in nations, or people, or your will. We talked about this on Sunday morning, Satan's will, our will. We always challenge God's sovereignty. But if you think about it in reality, if God is truly, absolutely sovereign, nothing, sh- nothing shakes him. Okay, And that's what it's saying here in very uh, clear understanding. Uh, and what we, we've got to understand is if he is a sovereign God, which he is, a sovereign God has to have a plan. And what's fascinating is God has given us 66 books to say, here's my plan. So if you're reading through the Bible this year as part of your New Year's start, which is fine, try and look for nuances to say, is this part of God's plan? How's God's plan unfolding with whatever you're reading? Or just don't, you know, just don't read something just to read it. Say, how does this fit into God's plan? For instance, if you start in Genesis like most of us do, how does that fit into God's plan? Well, he started everything by being what? Creator. That's a pretty good thing. You know, uh, and I think the Bible nails that a, a couple hundred times that God is creator. What's the ramifications of God being creator? So we could probably spend all night just on that understanding. And that just comes out of what? The first verse of the Bible. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's kind of an interesting thing as we look at this. Now, what we have here, let me kind of introduce you to something because this gets technical. And the reason I do this is because I want you to see things when you read it. That's all. So we have, this is the Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? We're good with this. There's a thing called Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry fills a lot of the Old Testament. Except it's, it's not like poetry like, I guess, most guys my age would say, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. That's the extent of our poetry. That's it. Um, I think I had to memorize a poem for English class in 10th grade. It was about this long, the poem. I have never found it again. So, but I didn't make it up. The point is, that's the extent of poetry, but we think of poetry as what? Rhyme, usually. Unless it's, um, what's that other one that, uh, uh, that's got different lines? Uh, haiku. Haikus. Woo! That's the extent. See how much poetry I know? But Hebrew poetry is, is kind of interesting because Hebrew poetry really has uh, three main effects. I mean, there's other things to it. I'm not going to give you the whole class on Hebrew poetry. But when we talk about parallelism, first of all, they have synonymous parallelism. Um, synonymous basically says one line recaps or builds on the line before it. So that's poetry to the Hebrew people. So if, uh, if, uh, if I'm Donald Trump, and I'd say, we have a big army, and then the next line would say, our army's so big, it's really big, big, <laughs> kind of thing. So it, the, each line builds on it. Uh, probably a bad analogy. So, um, Well, let's just do this. Hold your finger in 42. Let's look at Isaiah ver- chapter 1. I'll give you examples of each one real quick. We're not going to take a whole lot of time, but I want you to do this because this will help you when you read. That's all. Isaiah 1.3. So here's an idea of Hebrew poetry in a synonymous parallelism, where one will build on another or clarify another statement. So first two statements is an ox knows its owner and a donkey knows its master's manger. So basically, animals what? Go home, you know. Uh, one day our dog ran out, not far, and I, Liz goes all crazy and says, she's going to run away? I go, no, she'll be back. She knows who feeds her, and she's kind of lazy. She ain't looking or hunting. 
So she's she was back in like 10 minutes. I said, see. Uh, so basically it says animals understand that. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So God's saying, here's what animals are like. Simplicity of animals. Israel can't even be what? What is natural to animals. So it's, it's a good way to look at synonymous poetry. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to give you another idea of poetry. This is antithetical, where the two parts contrast one another. Where two parts of a verse, because we have versification, two parts of a verse um, contrast each other. So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29 says, Because they hated knowledge, and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. So see, they hated knowledge, and what the... What the uh, what Solomon's saying in the proverb, basically, they hated knowledge because, why? How do you understand they hated knowledge? Because they did not choose the fear of the Lord. So it's two contrasts that kind of, two statements that contrast each other. Um, Psalm chapter 1, the last one. So we have synonymous parallelism, antithetical parallelism, and Psalm 1 teaches us synthetic parallelism. And synthetic, basically, uh, taking... Uh, statements to reach a logical conclusion. Okay, so you're taking statements, then combining them to come down to a synthesizing them to come out with a logical statement. Um, so Psalm 1, 1 says, "Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night." So you see the. Uh, Logical conclusion that's drawn, if a man does this and is wise, he'll do this because he's wise kind of thing. So that gives us an idea. The reason is, as we go back to Isaiah 42, verse 8, I want you to see something. Because what we have is parallelism here. And you got to say, what kind? It's real easy when you read it now because you've got three ideas of main Hebrew poetry. And it says, I am the Lord... That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So here's the issue. The Lord is what? That's his name. Um, When we talk about a name, it's just not like saying, that's how you call me, that's how you identify me. It's all of who he is. So when you you look at this word here, it says, I am the Lord. Um, It's basically saying, I am am the existing one. Because it's saying... uh, Yahweh, it's saying what we call Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, with a pronoun slammed in the front of it. So it's basically saying, I and only I am, I am. The all-existing one kind of thing. If you wanted to do a, a translation on that. Uh, yeah, but when you look at this, you see how he clarifies who he is. because he does, Because of who he is, he can't give his glory to another, which makes him what? What I say at the start of this? This makes him absolutely sovereign. If he is the end-all, be-all, and he can't give it to anybody, uh, we consider ourselves as believers, we will have, we'll, we'll have the glory of the Lord. But that's not our intrinsic glory. It's his glory ref, you know, reflected off of us. Um, but he's, and he says, nor my praise to graven images. So now you know the problem that's going on. He's, he's absolutely sovereign, and people are now giving uh, his attributes to what? Idols, okay? How, now, before we jump ahead, let me ask you something. Play God for a minute in a nice manner. You're, the, you're a sovereign, omnipotent God who doesn't give your glory to anybody else. 
your people, your own possession, are into idolatry. What's, what's the natural um, result of something like that? Can we not say... You can be nice. God's, God's allowed to have what? Anger. He can be a little upset, which is fascinating, because it says in verse 25, let your eyes drift all the way to 25. It says, so he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it sent him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. So again, this is the interaction with God and Israel, because why? They have issues. And um, God's got to deal with it because, because of where they've gone and constantly gone with interest. It, you know, it fascinates me. Of all the things man does, is that kind of really I can't fully comprehend, is how does man substitute a God, a, an understanding of God, with something man-made? Or man's understandings. Because most religions, if you really get down and think about it and look at it, it's very much man-made. For instance, not to belabor anything, but right now we're having a lot of problems with Islam, right? If you really look at Islam and really examine the facts behind Islam, you've got to come up with one cognizant conclusion. What? Man-made religion. I mean, that's I'm not trying to be nasty or anything overall, because we'd say some really repugnant things that religion does, but overall, it's where did you get the understanding? Where did they get the, at least we can say, God revealed this to us. And we can say, here's the verse. But what does Islam do? And if they say, God revealed this to us, not in their book. It's not in their book. They're, they're running rush, uh, ramshot over people because of man-made religion. This is as easy as that. Because God has so created man to have a God-shaped vacuum, man's going to find a way to fill it with something. And most people, and, I, and I've noticed this in, in less educated countries, they fill it with something that's borderline demonic. Haitians with voodoo. Uh, let's see, Hispanics, a lot of them have black magic. So, you know, you go, and Catholicism mixed together. How's that for a, a brewery? Of things, so uh, when we look at this, God is angered when when he, your, His glory is given to an object or or something in that fashion, so we can understand that. Uh, and my question would go: Let's go. Let's go to a different question that has to do with another idea. Um, why do men even choose a form of idolatry, whatever it may be? Why Why does man get to that place that they've got to have? Um, maybe I'm kind of leaking where I'm going. But why do they have to have something to worship? And why is it not God if it's, they're going to worship something? It's a good question. Because if you look throughout the Bible, God is constantly uh, fussed at man for, for false worship, for idolatry, so on and so forth. So why would man choose to go to idolatry? You ever, it's, it's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? So we've got to ask ourselves the question, why do we choose God, to worship God? See, because these, these are, both these questions weigh heavily on us, because if we choose to worship God, we've got to say, why? Well, we should say, He is who He is. He is, He's the only one. There's nobody else like Him, and these idols are worthless. But think about this. When you worship something, you're telling it it's worth, worthy of that worship. So, if it's an idol, you're going before whatever 
man has molded and you say, you are worthy of my worship. You're worthy of, of me uh, somehow uh, genuflecting, for lack of a better word, before you. Uh, however, when you go through all those ideas of all the things man can worship and somehow there's a promise of when you worship, you will be gratified for your worship. We, we, they come up what? Empty. Until they come to God, and they understand that God is worthy to be worshipped, and all that's left is the God of the Bible. And if you're worshipping God, you should be what? Studying His Word, right? How do you know God if you don't spend time in His Word? You know, it's, it's fascinating. I worship a God that told me everything he need, we need to know about Him in a book. Now, let's take another religion. Tell me another religion that has a God that has put it down in a book and say, here's everything about me and what you need to know. How's Islam do? Let's, since we're picking on it tonight, why not? How's Islam done? Well, somebody will say, they have the Quran. And they call God Allah. That's just their name for God. No, A, Quran is not biblical. Um, it's almost nonsensical if you read if you've ever read parts of it. It's like... It's like it's like an ignoramus wrote it. I'm sorry, I don't know how else to put it because he he didn't really even write it. He dictated it because he couldn't write. So we we had all sorts of issues with that. But there's no revelation of who the God is, and a lot of things are stolen bits and pieces from the Bible, bits and pieces from history, bits and pieces from his corrupt upbringing. There's all sorts of issues going on, um, and and there's nothing there. What are you going to get? What about Hindu? What's the revelation of the Hindu god? Confucius. What's the revelation? Where, what book are you going to find this in? Nothing. So we have a claim, and this is what we claim. We claim God revealed himself in the Bible. So if that claim is what we do, we got to say, okay, how does God uphold uh, or come against these idols? So let's kind of, in our minds, think of this. Draw in your mind two different, two different files. Okay, one about idolatry or anything that's anti-God or poses to be God. Put that in the file. And the other file, we're going to talk about God. So here's the first thing. What does God claim about himself? What's the number one claim about God, about himself, just by his name? He claims to be the self-existent one. That's his claim. What's the claim of any idol? It's real easy. You can make a construction company out of it. It's real good. It's called man-made. So if you have anything that's religious, man is involved with making it. And man will do something very interesting. He'll make a God in his own image that he can fully grasp worshiping and doesn't kind of say, that requires too much or, or, too, or perfection's involved or righteousness is involved and faith is No. All I have to do is just do. And B, that's it. Okay? Secondly, most religions that I know of appeal to somewhat to the senses. Or we can even say the emotional base. You know? How do you feel about it? What did you get out of it? How much, um, and I'm not picking on yoga, but how much yoga positions did you hold correctly whilst, while inhaling s- stiffly over the incense pot? You know, what did you get? And I walked down, wow, it was really a great experience. Well, that's why I get a little irritated when that's kind of carried over in the church, because that's mysticism. 
and that mystical, that mysticism is, is really not biblical. What's biblical in, in, in juxtaposition to the senses is, is it spiritual? And if you look at what God has, it, it's, it, it's, it basically attunes to the human spirit. It, it, it's, it brings us home to the right place. Most of the things in false idolatry, false worship, those things appeal to sight. I see it and I believe it. Or I want to see it enough or come to a place. That's why when the false prophet comes in Revelation, he will do things miraculous like God. And then people are going to say, look, he is God. But you've got to ask, what is he doing? How's his empowerment? What's he getting? At? What's his... Listen, you will know a false prophet by their fruit. I read that in the Bible somewhere, did you? Okay, and, and the false prophet will be identified by his fruit, but at first what they're looking for is what is he doing for me today? What has he done? However, God is, God is perceived by faith. Faith isn't blind, it's based on facts. You with me? It's pretty cool, isn't it? How about idolatry? How personal is idolatry? Can you have a relationship with the totem pole? I, that's skin in my head, or or whatever object is being made. What is the personal? It's interesting. Islam is there a personal interaction with Allah? No. It's a mantra. It's doing certain things. It's praying at certain times of the day. It's all these things of doing, but there's no saying I have a personal relationship with God. However, when we talk about worship of God, it's personal. God, because God, why? Because God hears and God speaks. How's Allah doing? Now, I, I'm going to tell you something. Years ago, I got in a kind of a, I'm not a nice guy, so. I got in a heated argument with a guy in church, because he kept saying, Allah is the same as God. It's just their language for saying it. No. 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 Because here's why. If they said Allah, and they went to the Bible and then said, this is Allah, that would be fine. But Allah's root word, where it comes from, is worship of a, of the, I think it's a sun god, right? Or moon god. Moon god. Okay, so it comes from the root of that, first of all. Second of all, there is no personal interaction where, where Allah hears and Allah speaks. Okay? And in the Bible, I can find you plenty of places God, well, everywhere God speaks. It's a, my Bible says, thus saith the, the Lord, right? We got plenty of places. How, how does the Quran read? Thus saith Allah? Never. Never. Okay. Um, let's do another one. Probably the last one that we'll, we could probably beat this for. If you took an idol, what's going to happen to whatever it's made out of? It's going to rot. It's going to rust. It's going to fall apart. Um, religions have come and gone. Okay. What about God? When we talk about God, the first thing we started with, he's self-existent. And since he's self-existent and he's sovereign, he doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. And we give it a word, he's eternal. So we worship an eternal God, not a temporal rock. Remember, anybody remember the, what is it, pet rocks when they came out? That was, believe it or not, that was weird, but it was a form of worship because you said, this is my rock, I will talk to it. I will spend time with it, I'll take it places with me. And what are you doing? It's a what? 
a rock. See, people fall for the goofiest things. I'd rather have one of those Gumbies on the shelf that once in a while you could shoot with a BB gun or something. At least it had a reason for being on Remember the things with the Iggies, whatever they were called? Um, anyway, um, but listen to this. Now, I know we're only dealing with the first verse here, but I think it's important for us to set the pace to understand when God says, I will not give my glory to another. See, because God's glory was not even meant, listen to this, this is crazy, because when you read the Bible, God's glory, as he's written in Isaiah, was never meant to be reflected by any nation but Israel. So when God had this national uh, relationship with Israel, and Israel did not reflect God's glory, do you now know why God was so angered with them? Because they had every ability to worship him, because he spoke to them. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the word. He did all these things, and they refused to reflect God's glory. They were to be the light to the nations. How are they doing now? You know, and and I, one day they will. But right now, and throughout their history, uh, now I'm going to say something. Likewise, or in similar manner, we are told to reflect God's glory today. So I mean, it's 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 do the kind of. Not the, uh, I was going to say the baton's been passed to us, but not in reality. What we're doing is just a different reflection. We're to reflect our Lord, right? Um, so let's go to verse 9. Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now, it's interesting. God is also a God of prophecy, right? And God can't say, I'm going to load you up with a bunch of prophecies that will never come to, hap- uh, to fruition for 5,000 years. God has fulfilled prophecies throughout the biblical times, small vignettes. Then when Christ came, a big amount, but yet not all, because most of the prophecies foretold are still waiting to happen. But God has set the stage and said certain things, and certain prophecies have come through. So the very first part, he says, Behold, former things have come to pass. Which is kind of another thing. Let's load that on idolatry. How many idolatrous or, or false religions have ever said anything prophetic and been right? Now somebody said, well, Notre Dame. But he was like a bad clock, right? How many things did he get wrong? Okay, that's not how prophecy works. Okay? I can, you know, I watch, I watch sports shows. And I, one in the morning I was, I was yelling at, Nicely yelling at the TV. Because all these guys are giving their opinions about the game. I could do the same thing. I've got enough knowledge to say, this is my opinion. But until they actually play the game, it doesn't really matter what anybody's opinion is. Okay? But I I will be wrong as much as I am right when I say, here's who's going to win this game. As a matter of fact, if Will was listening to me tonight, my dear friend, he would say, anything Pastor Eric says about who he thinks is going to win, go the opposite. Because for years he would just say, oh, you say who's going to win? I'm going with the opposite team. You know, that's a Cowboy fan, just to let you know. So that was my one rat on a Cowboy fan. But as you look at this, God has always um, said something and his word has been upheld and God has been true to his word. Okay? So we go on in, in, in verse 9. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. In other words, before they happen, I'm going to give you some new prophecies. How many more prophecies will Isaiah get in the rest of this book? Well, a lot have to do with Christ and his first coming and his second coming. So we got a big uh, amount there, especially from 52 to 66. A lot of things. As a matter of fact, it even speaks of a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah, just like Revelation. So 
Revelation kind of just reflected Isaiah. So we have a lot of things that we got to cover there. Um, verses 10 through 13 says, One day um, God will receive proper worship. It says, Sing to, God, to the Lord a new song. Anybody ever realize that part of Revelation is a songbook? Revelation's got a lot of songs in it. That would be kind of neat. We always think of what? The Psalms as a hymn book. But so is Revelation. All these songs that will be sung... And guess what? Every time it says an angel's going to do something in the Revelation, what's an angel doing? An angel's saying, not singing. The singing is left for us. Isn't that fascinating? Angels, angels may be more melodious with their speaking, though, however. That's my opinion, but it doesn't ever say angels are singing. It says they're saying. Now, if you have a unison of myriad of myriad of angels saying something, it's got to have a tremendous effect, I'll be honest. But I think there's a different melody that man will carry so it's kind of interesting because when god says and 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 the second part of verse 10 says sing his praise from the end of the earth that means god's praise is going to go from you know because we don't think of an earth flat but for conversation from one end of the earth to the other how's that happening today how much of god's praises are being sung worldwide today i think that's that's a probably not taking any poll and coming out with a major number, but I don't think a whole lot of the world is singing God's praises. Um, you will go down to the sea and all that is in it, the islands and those who dwell in it. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up its voices. The inhabitants... Now, it's interesting. The inhabitants of Kedar and the uh, and the, inhab- and the settlements of Kedar and the inhabitants of Siah, those are Arab-based nations. Now, think about this for a minute. I don't, I'm not personally picking on Arabs today and Islam and all that, but we got to say what we got to say, right? But can you imagine Arab nations praising the Lord, the God of the Bible? And that's what's going to happen. Because right now they are sworn enemies of Israel, sworn enemies of God, therefore, and their biblical understanding is dismal, if anything. But one day they will be praising the Lord, and they will shout it. You want to say, go tell it on the mountain? I think this is where it came from, maybe. Because it says in the end of verse 11, let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. So it'll be heralded everywhere. Just, just think of that. I saw one of those, uh, group things where they're singing in the mall, go tell it on the mountain. It was really cool. But they're on different levels of the mall, singing. All this, what is it called? A group? What is that thing called? What? Flash, flash mob. That, that was kind of cool. I said, man, I'd like to do that, but man, if you've got me singing in the mall, everybody will leave. Um, but the, the, it was cool. But you think about it, the different levels, and what God's saying, praise will come from every parts of the earth, the, from the highest mountains to the furthest islands. And I think that's kind of cool, because that'll be lifted up to him. Uh, for, obviously, verse 12, give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. So again, uh, that new song, that prophecy of it will, will go throughout all the nation uh, nations. Which is fascinating because God gives us parts of the stanzas here of what they'll be singing. Well, one of the things they'll say, they'll be praising God from all the earth. Uh, the praise will be offered on every place on earth by every people group, and and be offered because the Lord is a warrior. Listen, the reason this is given this this praise is because of verse thirteen. Look at this. Verse thirteen says the Lord will go forth like a warrior. Now, if you bookend that. With verse 8, and it says God is basically sovereign. God's glory is not going to another. And now you say God is a warrior. How many people talk about God's ability to be a warrior? 
Uh, it's a fascinating word in Hebrew. It's kagabor, uh, the warrior, the um, valiant, mighty man. And what we think of as somebody who's a superhero. That's kind of the picture we should get. And God is the superhero that has gone forth uh, around the world. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will sh- utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry and prevail against his enemy. So th- basically, God's coming to, uh, which is, as I'm thinking about this, at the same time, God is pictured as a valiant, mighty warrior, but God's not a man. So don't let your vision think man-size. Kind of get what I'm saying? Think God-size warrior. Um, so, um, And it says in my Bible that when Jesus comes back, he's coming as a what? A lamb or a roaring lion? Roaring lion is a picture and depicted of, of, a, of a beast that's a warrior that's going to rule and reign. Uh, has anybody ever heard a lion roar real close? I'm going to tell you something. I got to, I, in my younger years, I was helping build the Miami Zoo. And we were there always early in the morning when they were feeding these things. And we got a little too close with our crew, and they were feeding the lions. It will scare the one lion. When he roared, the whole place started shaking. And your thighs do the things that you used to do, like at races. If you've ever been at races, your st- thighs start going like, you're, it's not voluntary. It's just like this. So think, when the roaring lion, the Lord, comes in triumph to rule and reign, what's he, everybody's just going to be in, in, in an uproar because of what's going on, enamored, uh, shaken, because it's not going to be, it's not going to be a local event. Okay? It's going to be worldwide. Um, so let's look at God's plan. God's, God's sovereign, and He's going to give a plan. In verse 14 through 17, He unfolds the plan that he has, uh, which is fascinating. Because people say, um, well, I don't believe in God because he's been quiet for a long time. Be careful, because when God's quiet for a long time, it's the period of when he starts to do something that could be very dangerous after the silence, okay? Uh, he says, I have, in verse 14, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. I, I was looking up these words, and I, th- I thought about it. God has restrained himself. Do you understand that? Now, I can go over here to Larry and I can restrain Larry. Or I can restrain Ron. I can restrain somebody. But God is the only one that could restrain God from doing something. You get the picture? Because in Hebrew, it's very beautiful language that God is restraining himself because of who he is. Because of himself. Um, And... The action is not complete. In other words, God's not completely restrained himself. At some point, he's going to let go. And think what control God has, being God, that he has restrained himself uh, and kept still. And he says, but he says, like a woman in labor, I I groan. I will both gasp and pant. Now, woman in labor waits to bring forth, because that moment, and then... The child comes forth, God's waiting for the time that he's not restrained anymore, and he brings forth what he has to bring forth. Um, fascinating thing, because he says in verse 15, so that's part of the plan. God's going to be silent for a time. Verse 15, I will lay waste uh, the mountains and the hills. 
and wither all vegetation. I will make the rivers and the coastlands and dry up the ponds. So God's going to get basically uh, zap the water works in the world and level uh, the mountains and hills. And you say, that can't happen. Well, just have a good earthquake. Puerto Rico is now understanding they are still an island and being flattened a little bit. It's sad to see what happens to this island. It's a beautiful place, but they're being flattened. Now, God can send, that was a 6.5, right? And it was 6.5. Imagine a, you know, 10 or 12 in certain places. God can level mountains. Listen, God can create mountains. He can level them. And I think it's a fascinating thing to see what God will do here. So one of the things we have, we have a, a God waiting for a long time, God laying waste to the mountains and the hills, and vegetation, because he says he dries up the vegetation and water. And But he says in verse 16, But I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. And the blind is the nation of Israel. So God will still what? God's plan comes through that nation of Israel. So even though they're blind, they need a guide. Okay? In past they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, and rugged places in the plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. So God says, I've got a plan. It's not finished yet. So when we look at things in events and we read things in the news and we see things unfolding about the nation of Israel and things going on, we can say, God's not done. And, you know, I I said this before and I'll say it again. The good reason I believe the Bible is because God, um, how's the best way? He formed the nation of Israel and God said, I will keep it and care for it. And that little nation of Israel is still around. Still on the map. So I believe the Bible. One word will make me believe the Bible, Israel. Okay? Should should do the same for you, the effect says. Um, what came to my mind was, uh, I think it was a poem. We'll go back to poetry. I have miles, to, uh, promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And God's got promises to keep. One is a major promise, right? Anybody know the major promise God's got to keep? The Abrahamic Covenant? It's not, not, none of it's been really fulfilled. There's been shades of it kind of been fulfilled, but it's not, the whole thing's not fulfilled. And that's a major thing that has to be done, okay? Uh, it's fascinating because Abraham's seed is promised a land. Think about this for a minute. Abraham's seed is promised, you hear what I'm saying? Not seeds, not descendants. His seed is promised a land. Who's his seed? Jesus, the Messiah, right? Does Jesus, the Messiah, own a land right now physically? He's got promises to keep. You get the picture? So these things should help us understand how these things go together. Um, which is which is really cool, because in verse 17, he goes on to say, They shall not be, uh, be turned back or be utterly put to shame, who trust in idols, who say to molten image, you are our gods. So God's still saying, what? So he's still being uh, upholding his understanding of, about the idolatry that's been chosen. They, they say to molten images, you are our gods. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but the thing that I find fascinating is God will not give his glory to another. They have allowed God's glory to be given or at least promoted to an idol. And God says, well, you've done that. Um, you're now going to be in shame. You know what removes the shame? There's only one thing that will ever remove the shame. It's the cross of Christ. 
Just think about that. The only way this shame can ever be removed by these people is that they will find uh, the cross, because otherwise all they have to look forward to is, is the shame that's here. And I, and I think it's a sad thing that we have that. Uh, it's, it's, un, it's, it's funny, because the word in Hebrew... I didn't, I didn't put it like that, but the word in Hebrew for shame is bosh, not bush, bosh, okay? Uh, it's basically to feel shame, um, to be without excuse. So, you've served other gods, and you can't say, well, I didn't know. you served other gods, and you can't say, I didn't hear about God's plan. Nobody ever told me. You have no excuse. And really, if you go back, I think Paul expounded on that in Romans 1 and 2. Because he said they are without excuse. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. Um, so verse 18 uh, through 25, we're going to talk about the ultimate that helps the picture. Here's, here's what he's talking about. He's going to talk about his useless servant Israel. God's got some things to weigh against them. Verses 18 through 25, he gives the identification of this servant. So again, what I said, context is important. So in verse 20, 18, he says... Uh, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? So deaf, uh, or so deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is so blind as he is, uh, as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as a servant of the Lord. So again, the, here the servant is picked, is pictured in Israel, and Israel's problem right now is they're under condemnation by God. God has given them spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness. Um, but here, so you get, don't miss this, Israel is pictured as God's messenger. How are they doing? You know, just think of the, the, the things God can cast condemnation at them for. And we never really think Israel failed to bear the message. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, Whom shall I send? He says, Send I. He's got to resend somebody. Now he's got to send his Messiah, right? Because well, how did the nation do? And given them, they didn't do a good job. So failing as God's messenger is one of the chief condemnations God's got against them as, as his chosen nation to give light to the nations. Uh... And I don't think anything's more cognizant of their inability to give out a message when they're blind to the Word of God and deaf to it. What do you have to give out if you're not getting anything in? You understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, I think it's important for us to know. Um, well, let's go. Let's let's do something different. Um, let's look at Israel from a, a medical standpoint. Can we give a diagnosis to their sickness? Because they're spiritually sick. Think how sick they are. Um, most of you here uh, tonight are Gentiles. You were not offered the things the nation of Israel was offered. You didn't have the base language at some point. That was their original language was Hebrew. God spoke to them in their language. He gave them prophets and uh, a multitude of prophets, not just the ones that wrote, but they were given other prophets. They were given the priesthood to have that mediator between them, between God and man. Uh, and I think when we look at it and we make a diagnosis of Israel's ailment, here's what I would come down with. It's horrible when you can't see what you need to see because you refuse to see what's right before you. And that's when you know you're sick. 
Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I think uh, when Israel looks at God's word and doesn't understand the basic understanding of God's word, there's sickness there. And in today's atmosphere, if you were to go to a, a, a nominal temple that is actually teaching God's word, not conservative, not secular, not reformed, but a, a t- temple that would teach God's word, they're teaching life attitudes from God's word or allegories or they're saying things like, oh, creation's just a, it could be just a myth just to understand who God is, but it's not a true story. What? What? Uh, so I think we see, we see this as we go down to verse 20. It says, you have seen many things, but you do not observe them. That's sickness. How many things has Israel observed about God? Just sit down one day and write down the things the nation has seen up in the time of Isaiah. So what, what we got 700 uh, B.C., uh, probably 1,200. 1400 when I when when Adam came I mean Abraham came on the scene somewhere around the 2100 depends just for sake of conversation 1500 years of, of biblical history did they not see God and I would think as Israel was given instructions that the fathers teach the children kind of thing that they would have passed down all these things as a matter of fact they would have had to celebrate the Passover every year the feast of booths the Feast of Trump, all these different feasts were pictures of what God had done in history that he would do in the future to the nation of Israel. And God says what? Your ears are open, but none hears. You ever go to a medical doctor and say, you know, I think i got a problem with my ears. I'm not hearing. And the doctor looks in your ears, gives you a, a test or whatever, and he says, your ears are fine. You're just not what? Listening. Ever have a doctor tell you that? I mean, that's pretty, you guys say, and i got to pay you for this? You know, here's the deal. Israel had their ears working fine. They just didn't have a a, a communication with the Lord. Verse 21 says, The Lord was pleased for His righteous sake to make the law great and glorious. Now think about this. Everybody has a problem with the law, but they very rarely bring in this verse. So God does something to keep them, um, have a paradigm around them to protect them. You know what the law was meant for for Israel more than anything? To keep them separate from the nations. To keep them different. Did the nations not have laws that, like for murder? Sure. They have, uh, uh, and if you want to see laws off the chain, go read stuff about Sharia law. That's my fifth thing about Islam tonight. But go read something about Islamic Sharia law. That'll scare the bejeebas out of you. So they have a law. But God's law was meant to make Israel different, to, to always herd them in a direction to worship Him, to have a relationship with Him, and to go out and give that to the other nations. Um, but they didn't do that. Verse 20, 20, 22 says, But the people, but this people plundered, despoiled, all of them trapped in caves. In other words, they have their fear of life, are hidden away in prisons. They have become my, a prey, and none of them, and, and none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, Give them back. So this is where Israel stands. They stand in a very lowly place, a very fearful place. That's not what was meant for them. They were supposed to be the lead of nations. And where are they now? You know? I'm mostly discussing Isaiah's time. 
Verse 23, and remember they had problems with the Assyrians and the Babylonians were coming in at the same time. Well, this, this time that we're at now. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? I believe this is where Isaiah, and this is my personal, is interjecting in here. Okay, you guys have heard this message. Who of you are going to stand up for the Lord? Who of you are going to hear? Who of you are not going to just hear today, but will continue to want to hear? Verse 24 says, Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have what? Sinned. I see Isaiah really understands they have sinned as a nation. Have they recognized their sin? See, we're not dealing with personal uh, New Testament individual salvation where we have to individually. Are. This is a nation that has to recognize that they've sinned against the Lord. And the only way the Lord's going to nationally forgive them is for them to come to the Lord. And here's the easiest thing. Obey Him. You can't obey the Lord and be in the things Israel was involved in. Um, and we can make application today. You can't involve, you can't please the Lord and do things that God wants you to if you're hanging around with the wrong people, if you're doing the wrong things, if you're, so on and so forth. But this was dealing with a nation that obedience for, was required for blessing. And we can see right here, Israel's not under a blessing umbrella, so they have to be under the other side, cursing. And one of the things God says, when you're cursed, you'll be what? Scattered among the nations. Um, so let's go back to read the rest of verse 24. We'll begin again. Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they were not willing to walk? So they sinned. They were not willing to what? What? Continually walk in those ways, and whose law they did not obey. Uh, that's, in baseball, we call that you're out. Three strikes. Right? You're out. Okay? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and set him aflame all around and yet he did not recognize it and it burned him with the pay, and burned it by uh, but he paid no attention and i think this is a really bad because god paints a very colorful picture of his of his discipline to the nation of israel and what did they learn you know you know i can say something as we've gone through isaiah I don't know if you've heard it, the recapitulation, the redundancy, the repetition of this thing with, that Israel just didn't... How many messages do you need to know that God loves you and cares for you, just come, you know, return to Him, and they just didn't do it? Look at the next verse, 43 verse 1. But now, great words in Scripture. When you see these things, that's saying there's, there's a change in what's about to happen... Uh, but now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel. So God's taken His creative ability, okay, that He used in chapter 1 of Genesis, and say, here's the same thing I did for you as a nation. I took you from nothing, and formed you, and created you, and my it's a hands-on project kind of idea, okay? Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. So you hear the difference of the, of the voice now? I have called you by name, you are mine. So even though he's got this uh, huge issues with Israel, he still hasn't forgot they're his, and he still has a plan. So 43, when we get into chapter 43 next week, uh, we'll pick up again with verse 1, but we see how the t- tone 
or I guess the intonation, intonation, right, has changed. And, and so God, and I think sometimes when we have chapter breaks, they're pretty poor. This is one place I don't think a chapter break should be there uh, because it really just flows, especially with but now. I don't know how they would do that, but I guess the horse hit a pothole and good place for a chapter. I don't know. I don't know how they did it. So, um, But it's a good place. We'll pick up next week with chapter 43. Um, any questions? Any thoughts? A lot of stuff. I mean, if we were to... St- hit every nuance and discuss every verb in here. It's fascinating, but we did, we wouldn't have the time to get through some of it. Go ahead. Right, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, everybody has issues with the law, but the issue was meant for Israel as a nation for guidelines for how to have a relationship with God. Um, God didn't give him just um, speeding laws kind of thing or, or how to conduct yourself in, in an environment, with you know social environment. God gave him laws for worship. God gave him laws for society, how to get along. And it, they were lifted up above the other groups around them because no other groups had a, a way to have a law to worship God. <laughs> think about it. Here's the things you do, and God will find this a sweet savor if you do these things. And if you do them, not out of rote, but you do them out of love. Uh, one of the things I was going to do is turn to Malachi and look at some of those ideas. But if you go to Malachi, it's the end of Israel's career in, the, in, in what we have as the Old Testament. And God has basically said, you haven't obeyed me. You haven't even done the, the simplest things, which is sacrifices with the right attitude and... We're done, <laughs> kind of thing. Silent for 400 years. Because in the new covenant, if the nation has to be saved physically, I'm um, physically saved and spiritually saved, in order for them to have that constant relationship, he, he's, he, they will be spiritually saved. And when they're saved and go into the kingdom, God writes in them the law, so that they will be an obedient nation and always bless his nation. So that's what God will do for that remnant of believers that go into that. God, yes, but that's a new covenant. We're not in that, so. Yeah, that's... Uh, but the idea is he writes it in there, and they don't even have to seek God's word. They got it in their heart. So that's, that's a good place. And, and according to Zechariah, everybody will grab onto the hem of a Jew to understand who God is. And they'll teach, and they'll what? No, they'll teach them. I think that's fascinating, because right now, up until now, their messenger uh, personality, their their idea of being a messenger, they failed. Um, except me. I'm doing okay. I'm a Jewish believer, so I get to give you the message. So. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that's a whole different paradigm. I'm not getting into that. But it, it's, it's fascinating to see how are they doing as a nation. And if you look at it spiritually, I'm going to say this real quick. If you look at Israel spiritually, they're still stagnant as a nation. There's nothing spiritual about Israel. You understand what I'm saying? You can't go to Israel and find a temple. You can find a pseudo-priesthood, but it's not the real thing. You can find some people that are religious, a religiosity that they're uh, more about the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Talmud than they are about God's Word. So they've lifted tradition and man's thoughts above. So they're in a bad place. And the rest of them, the majority of Israel itself, is secular. 
So it's as bad as this country. No, just it is what it is. Uh, let's pray before I get in real deep water. Father, we thank you for this time as we spent in Isaiah, uh, the, the roads you give us as we look into this wonderful prophet. Father, again, I thank you for attentive ears. In Jesus' name, amen.